turn in your Bibles to our wonderful brother James's letter. We are beginning chapter 3 today. We're going to read the first 13 verses, and we'll back up, give context. We actually, this is, uh, James continues to be just a lot of fun to study. So I hope you have fun today as we sit in the Word. Today's message title is Teacher's Tongues. Anybody in this room a teacher? Anybody? Anybody teach? Come on, raise your hand. Every single hand in this room better be up. You are teachers. Your life is being watched and observed, and you have influence into other people's lives. So you may not be a formal teacher. You may not have this kind of platform to be able to teach others God's word. You may not be a teacher of, you know, of education and those kinds of things, but we are constantly instructed just that announcement that i just went through in regard to we are bombarded with messages those messages that come into our lives from all these different sources they are attempting to instruct us according to whether it's true or lie whatever somebody's subject matter is we are taught constantly and in that we have a pretty big warning from james in regards to our tongues this morning so my brethren let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, also able to bridle the whole body. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths, that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships. Although they are so large and driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a, litter, a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature. And it is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our God and Father, and with it, we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water? And bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives, or a grapevine bear figs? Thus, no spring yields both salt water and fresh. And now you can see where vows of silence come from, right? But is that the solution to shut up? 
It's the, it's the transformation of the heart that occurs, and we're going to get into Jesus' teaching. Out of the abundance of this heart is what I speak out of my mouth. So it's the transformation in Jesus Christ that we're looking at. It's the transformation of Jesus Christ that James is highlighting and all of this. But back to the beginning. So my brethren, this whole idea of let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter, a, a judgment larger in magnitude. So it seems to be the focus, as James is talking about tongues, subject matter-wise, that he's not just talking about teachers in an independent sentence, and now he's talking about everybody else's tongues. Yes, that's partially true, but it seems as though the emphasis that he is placing is upon the language, the words that come out of a teacher's mouth. So in this culture at this time, and you get a snapshot out of this, of this in 1 Corinthians when Paul is writing a letter to the Corinthians to correct their church behavior. In 1 Corinthians 14, it talks about when you come together, let a few of you teach. Don't everybody just start teaching whatever they want, whenever they want. When you gather together, come in an orderly fashion. And those who have a word, something to instruct the body as a whole, that the body as a whole is going to benefit, do that in order, according to God's truth, according to God's power. There's, a, there's an orderliness. As we sit in the structure of our, ser our services, a lot of uh, what we do over this hour, hour and a half, is according to tradition. This is kind of what our culture does. We do worship first because everybody kind of trickles in depending on traffic time and what the morning looked like getting in and those kinds of things. We want to worship our God according to his truth. We want to enter into his presence with thanksgiving and praise, um, just giving ourselves the opportunity to worship God together in a corporate sense. At the same time, worshiping before we get into God's word has its way of moving the outside cares out of our minds, out of our current context, so we can sit, not at my feet, but at the feet of Jesus as we listen to his words. Lord, what do you have to say to me today? And this is why we do worship at the end. It's not just to stand up and stretch our legs and walk out of here in an orderly way. It's so that what has the Lord spoken to you? As we remember Jesus through communion, his body, his blood, his sacrifice, we have worship at the end so that that gives you the space to, Lord, this is the conversation that we need to have. This is how I want to praise you right now. This is where I need cleansing and forgiveness. So we have, a, we have a structure in place. But one of the main structures we have in place is what we call the pulpit ministry. So the teaching. And I sit on a stool because this is a lot more, this is, this is, this is more my personality where I'm, I'm just an informal guy. I'm not, uh, as we sit in teachers, how I communicate, there are a lot of people that will not be able to pick up what I put down. They hear me one time and she want, I, there's, I don't understand that guy, he doesn't, he doesn't speak my language, and they'll never listen to me. And there's other that are in this room, you know, you think I'm the greatest thing since sliced bread, as my father-in-law would say. But you, got, you have your favorite teachers, Right? You have people that you listen to like, that's my personality. I can pick up what they put down. I like the way they think. I like the way they form messages. And I'm saying that to say this. There are, I have my personality and how I am able to communicate in a public space. 
I have where I'm comfortable and where I'm uncomfortable. I've had to learn over time that I just need to be who Jesus has created me to be, to study his word, to understand it, and be able to communicate it in a way that this is what I've learned over time. This is what I've learned this week. This is what the Lord is speaking to me, and my dependence is upon the Holy Spirit to speak to each one of you. As you are listening to a teacher, usually you're going to pick up on a singular phrase. The Lord is doing something in your life. The Holy Spirit has something for you, uh, to speak to you this morning out of the variety of passages that we are going to be in. And I trust him to capture your mind. And when you're listening to a speaker, what happens? You pick up on one sentence that I say, and you start meditating on that. You start writing notes. And guess what? You check out for the next five or ten minutes. And that's okay because you're meditating on what the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. So I don't sit in, in homiletics, which is how to speak and how to deliver a sermon. Here's your, here's your main point, here's subpoints A, B, and C, and here's your conclusion. Um, we're not going to sit up here with organ music attempting to motivate you as I start ramping up at the end and you know, motivating you to response. I'm not going to sit up here and treat this as though it's Comedy Central and tell a whole bunch of jokes. i got to be me. But I'm not condemning those other things either because other men and other women, they need to be them as they communicate. My wife, when she teaches, she pours over a manuscript. She writes everything out verbatim. She memorizes it as she communicates it. Totally different than me. If I take notes, anytime you've ever seen me up here with a piece of paper, when I get out of my mind and out of my moment with the Lord right now and out of his word, I feel like I hit face first into a hurdle. Does that make sense? Like you're going down the track, and it's every time I look down at my notes, it's face plant into a hurdle, and then I stumble, and where am I, and who am I, and i got to remember where I am. So I don't bring up notes, because it's not how, who I am and how I'm wired. Some people can be offended by, you know, something that's so simple. Other people, that's uh, it's exactly the way, you know, I, I learn or whatever. So when we talk about teachers and this recommendation to let there be few, in, in what I'm saying right now, we as human beings, we like to elevate one person over another. We see this in the Bible. There was a conflict in the Corinthian church between some people. I really like Paul. I can pick up what Paul puts down. That guy, he speaks my language. And other people are like, you know, Paul's, Paul's a trip. He looks weird physically. He can't communicate that well. Yeah, he's a theological genius, but we like Apollos. Man, that guy's got a golden tongue, right? So there was this division. We do the same thing in our culture where we will lift one teacher up as though they are better in some fashion in opposition to another. And the danger is, is that we, we want to make sure that we are always elevating Jesus. So regardless of what you like as a listener in regards to being instructed in the word of God, the emphasis always ought to be upon is the person being true to what the word of God says or are they just communicating their opinion. And this is the thing with let few of you be teachers. Is our tongues... A teacher's tongue. What I say, it matters. If I am telling you that I am standing up here, I'm sitting up here in the name of Jesus, based upon the authority of his word and his word alone, 
And what I am telling you, I'm, I am attempting to communi communicate what is true to you. But if I fail in that and I communicate something that's of me, something that's of a denomination, something that's of a culture, something that's an opinion and not the fact of the matter, what happens? Most people, as listeners, you just were instructed in something, and you're going to take what I said, the words that just came out of my mouth, and you're going to run with that. And how dangerous can that be if I'm wrong? If I'm not teaching the word? And this is the thing, when teachers get amongst teachers, teachers start to compare themselves. Well, I, can, I could have taught that passage a lot better in different ways. So, the caution in letting few people be teachers in the body of Christ, the emphasis is upon, I understand it to be a, a maturity issue. Because the reality is, is every single one of us is a teacher. Every single one of you communicates about your Lord and Savior. And what you communicate about your Lord and Savior goes into the ears of the hearers. And some people are going to run with what you say. Some people are not going to think yeah, this is, I've, I've mentioned this before, I was not taught to be a free thinker until I became a Christian. In our culture, I was taught to regurgitate the information. Don't think for yourself, memorize the bold print, and whatever's told to me now, go and regurgitate, go and parrot the exact same thing. But in the body of Christ, this is why we teach verse by verse. I go and I study and I pray, there's an emphasis that we have to instruct every single time that we gather together, but now it's upon you to test what I said. Is that really what the Word of God said? Is that what it says? Is that what it's communicating? And I have to confess, there's been, there's been a couple of times where I've had to come back to you as a congregation and say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Because I listened to something else. I listened to another teacher. I picked up what they were putting down. I didn't think too hard about on it. And then I came in here and communicated, and it was wrong. And I've had to come back and say, that was wrong. So the emphasis on let few of you be teachers, this is, this is the reality of the responsibility that we have when we gather as the body of Christ to make sure that whoever is communicating, and it's not just on Sunday mornings, it's in the Bible studies, it's as we gather together in fellowship, we have a great responsibility to make sure that we are communicating the mind and the heart of God according to his truth and not our opinion. Like, sit in that responsibility. And the responsibility is communicated, why? Because as you speak, you will be judged. Uncomfortable? I'm, un I'm uncomfortable. I, I say a lot of words. I'm really good at rambling. <laughs> and I say things that are off. As you communicate to my wife, my kids, sometimes up here. Our words have power. Our words have weight. Once I get through this section, we're going to go into the Gospels, and Jesus very specifically says, you will be judged by the words that come out of your mouth. Got the staccato? What, and again, James is picking up on 
language that he's already, a subject matter that he's already discussed in this letter in regards to be slow to speak, but be quick to hear, and be slow to wrath. So this is, this is just in human nature. As you gather together in the body of Christ, those who you allow to teach you in the authority and the name of Jesus Christ, make sure that their tongue is bridled by the Holy Spirit and by the word of God, the whole body, the whole man, the whole woman. That's what James is communicating. And then the warning is, if you want to be a teacher, you're seeking a good thing. And being a, being a teacher, it's a gift of the Holy Spirit. We see that in Romans and in 1 Corinthians. Seeking to be a teacher, it's a good thing. It's a good desire. If you want to teach the Word of God, and if you do teach the Word of God in any context, your Almighty God, give me your Holy Spirit. And give me the power and the ability to communicate your Word in truth the style does not matter you communicate according to your personality what you feel the lord is leading you in but make sure that the man that the woman is bridled by god why here in verse two again james gives us the warning we all stumble we all fall we all err we all sin in many ways and I'm very thankful that that verse is in the Bible because he's just being honest. Nobody, nobody's perfect. And he goes on to say, if you're able, if anyone's able to, if, uh, if anyone does not stumble in the word, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body. So there's a, there's a pursuit that we are seeking for God to bridle our whole body, our mind, our heart, and our spirit as we communicate his word. This idea of per perfection, it's maturity. He's already talked about patience having its perfect work. He's talked about there are perfect gifts that God gives. He talks about the word of God, that it is the perfect law of liberty. And the gift of teachers, the gift of apostles and evangelists and pastor teachers, those things in Ephesians chapter 4, it says that there, there's a purpose for the building up of the body of Christ to equip one another. There, there's a reason for, for teaching and for instruction so that we could all mature and grow into the image of Christ. And that's exactly what James is communicating here. And then he sits in just different imagery. So you all know what a bridle and the bit looks like on a horse, right? It's a small piece of equipment. Has anybody ever ridden a horse, by the way? I, w I, was, I was an adult before I ever climbed on the back of the horse talking about an intimidating animal you get on the back of solid muscle and i got on the back of this old thing that was nice and gentle but you're up high you're looking down and it's this horse if it has a mind of its own and does what it wants to do i'm a dead man right solid muscle but a little tiny piece of equipment on a bridle that goes over its you know over its snout and a bit into its mouth what are you able to do you pull the rein to the left a little bit, it moves the horse's head, that bit's in its mouth, there's gentle bits, there's harsh bits, and you are able with that little bridle to move the whole body. And the idea, it's, the word is obedience in the, King James, in the New King James that I'm reading, it actually means to persuade. As you, as the rider on the back of this beast, this four-footed animal, 
with a little bridle, you were able to convince it to go where you want it to go. Same thing with a ship's rudder. Another imagery. And again, James is putting down parables and images that the culture can know and understand. When you see a ship, like think of a huge container ship. Go look at some Google images of a container ship, these massive machines that displace all of this water. And their rudder, it's about 2% of the size of the ship. So this little rudder that's behind the propeller, the helmsman, the pilot, is able to steer this massive ship by this little tiny rudder. And this the idea of a tongue. So our tongues are small, but the Lord has placed our tongues into our bodies to enable us to communicate, right? And it's this, it's this little thing that's in our mouth, and it is able to boast of great things. It, it's, it's, in a, it's in a position in the body that it's at the forefront of everything because what we say has a lot of weight and emphasis upon our relationships, our relationship with God in prayer, our relationships with other human beings. Does it make sense? So this is what he's highlighting in regards to the placement of the tongue. But what does he comment about the tongue? See how great a forest, a little fire that will set it ablaze. So the words that come out of our mouth have the capability of a small flame, a spark, outside of a fireplace can burn down a structure. A spark outside of a fire pit can burn down a forest. So this is the weight and emphasis that he's putting upon the human tongue that's inside of all of our heads. What fire did speech send into this world in the very beginning? Satan comes in the garden in Genesis 3. Did God really say his tongue set a fire that Adam and Eve listened to and disobeyed God and through that disobedience brought sin into the world? The consequence of sin is death. The purpose that Jesus came on to die on the cross was to correct the fire that was set by a tongue. All right, you political junkies. How many fires does our media set every single day? They are teachers. They go and they gather information, true or false. And regardless of what perspective, the media's job is to what? It's to teach the population what is going on in the world. Hopefully it's true. It's not always true. But they have a message that they're attempting to communicate. How many fires does the media set? How is it set? What the teachers say, the students, the listeners, absorb and go and follow. Do you think Vladimir Putin has set a fire in Russia and in Ukraine through speech? Absolutely. Have your, has your tongue ever kindled a fire in the life of your spouse? Have you ever said something that just inflames a situation rather than douses it with love and gentleness and the water of the fountain that he's created within it? Does all this make sense? Our tongue has the capability of setting 
the simplest of conversations, the simplest of circumstances, on fire with how we communicate. It says that it's set on fire by hell. The, the word there is Gehenna. So the imagery, again, in Jerusalem, on the south side of Jerusalem, you know, it's kind of on this little mini plateau, and there's, there's these different valleys. The, the Hinnom Valley is the valley that's on the south side of Jerusalem, and that's where they burn the trash. So when Jesus talks about hell, and when he talks about hellfire, usually he's using this word for Gehenna, and it's in reference to the trash that is constantly burning. If you've ever been to a different part in the world where they burn their trash, it is, it's something that is always burning in the community. The smoke is always rising as the decomposition happens and, you know, you burn it to get rid of it. That's the imagery. So Jesus, when he's talking about hellfire, he's pointing to a very real image that the culture can see and they know about that the dump is constantly burning and that's to give an image of what it means to be dry and separated from the fresh fountain that our almighty God is and that imagery is going to become important because we're going to get into the Old Testament in a minute. Verse 8 says that no man, literally no one of man. So the same language that, uh, that Paul uses, um, which he's quoting out of Psalm 14, that there is no one who does good, no, not one. It's the same emphasis. None of us are capable of taming this tongue. We all, what we speak, it's, it's based on our emotion and our life circumstance, and we need to be bridled by the Holy Spirit, but we all fall and stumble in many things. Not a single one of us is ever in the future going to perfectly bridle our tongue. Does everybody have that? None of you are going to be perfect. We're all going to make mistakes. And this is where this, just the heart and attitude of repentance, forgiveness, relationship, because no man, no woman, no one of us can tame the tongue. It's an unsettled evil. It's always going. It's full of deadly poison. We're going to get into that in a minute when Jesus calls the Pharisees a brood of vipers. The words that we speak can just poison the lives of others, can poison our own life. And then just the reality, we bless our God and our Father with this little member in our skulls. And at the same time, we turn around and we curse men. And it's like, oh God, I love you. And then after, immediately when we're done worshiping, we're done praying. Now we're right into complaining and tearing down another human being that was created in the image of God. That ought not to be so. It's not proper is what he's saying and then he gets into this imagery of a spring. A water source cannot give you salt water and fresh water at the same time. Salt water is always, bitter water, is, it's always going to poison the source. It's not good for drinking, and we're going to get into that image in a minute also. All right, you ready for... James, that's all pretty easy to pick up what he's putting down, but go into your Bibles, into Matthew. We're going to sit with Jesus for a minute. So again, just the emphasis upon James's influencers, the teachings that have influenced his life. They're influencing him as a, a pastor, as he is serving human beings in the name of Jesus. They're influencing him in a way where they're he's pinned all of this down to send it to to those 
who are not present in, in Jerusalem, but these teachings are valuable. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is definitely influencing his brother. Chapter 12, verse 24 of Matthew. Pharisees railing against Jesus. This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. So, those who are witnessing Jesus' life, these religious leaders, their tongues are wagging. And they're condemning the source of authority, right? And they're saying... The miracles that Jesus is, is performing, they're by, that's by the power of Satan, not by the power of God. That's what they're saying. So listen to Jesus' response. So he knows their hearts, and he says to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. Every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub... By whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can, a strong, how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? He who is not with me is against me and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. So that's the context of these next couple of paragraphs. Therefore, I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men. All those different ways that you've erred in your speech. Go to God for con in confession and repentance and forgiveness. He is faithful and just to cleanse you from all of that stumbling and falling of the tongue. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. In context, he's referring to say, Jesus is of the devil. Anybody who's holding that opinion, that is a separator for sure. Verse 32, anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Again, his emphasis is upon the tongue, the words that are coming out. Here's the same imagery that James is using. Verse 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. Brood of vipers. Poison-tongued. Their mouths are filled with deadly poison. How can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. I've brought this up multiple times here. This is something that I communicate to myself often. Um, I pray for God to give me self-awareness of my own state of emotions. Lord, let me know the condition of my heart because I know out of the abundance of my heart, these are the words that are escaping my mouth. This ought to be a passage that you have underlined, that you know, and that you're asking God for, that you don't just say words in an empty fashion, but you're thinking and considering what you're saying and the heart and the emphasis behind it. At the same time, as you seek to love other people in the name of Jesus, you need to be slow to speak but quick to hear. The quick to hear is listening to the words that come out of people's mouths. Why? 
because it's out of the abundance of their heart that they're speaking. If you just listen to the words that come out, the Lord gives the way that these individuals need to be ministered to or helped or encouraged. You know if somebody is struggling or they're angry or they're filled with joy by the words that are coming out of the mouth. The words that come out of the mouth, again, it's what are they meditating on? What are they thinking about? Where's, where's their emphasis? What are, where, are, where are the goals? Where are they driving at? If you just listen to other human beings and at the same time listen to yourself, there is so much instruction. But Jesus is saying, out of the abundance of our heart, the mouth speaks. A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, only in Jesus, brings forth good things. And an evil man, out of the evil treasure, brings forth evil things. But I say to you, here's the same warning that, uh, that James gave. Every idle word men may speak, they will give an account in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. So is Jesus saying you were saved by your words? You were justified by your words? Remember we sat in this last week. What did Paul say? You were justified by your faith in Jesus Christ. What did James say? You were justified by your works because your faith is working together with your works, right? There's, there's a synergy between faith and works. And now here Jesus is saying you will be justified by your words. Why? Out of the heart, what is true, your core, these are the words that you speak. Do you confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior? This is, this is all the emphasis. By faith, you are justified. You are declared as though you have never sinned through the words that you speak. You hear with the ear. The word is preached to you. It's communicated to you. The Lord has sent somebody to you. And then confession is made with the mouth. But again, sit in, sit in his words. And again, this is where we depend upon the blood of Jesus to to cleanse us and to heal and to forgive and bring about reconciliation when my mouth has done damage. Because in the day that I stand before Jesus Christ, I do not want to be judged for my words and for my actions apart from his sacrifice because, oh my, I will end up in Gehenna. I sit in, right? These aren't my words. These are Jesus' words. Now, we're going to go sit in an Old Testament image. In Exodus chapter 15. And I think this is why I've enjoyed James so much, because it takes me back to all these great Old Testament stories that, that are the background, part of the background at least for the information that he's communicating. So in Exodus 15, this is Exodus 14 is the scene where God has judged Egypt through the 10 different plagues. The Jews have been sent out of Egypt. They are being pursued by the army. They're at the edge of the Red Sea and the whole culture is freaking out. And you have this comment coming out of Moses. Moses says, do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord which he will accomplish for you today, for the Egyptians who you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. These incredible words. And you have the whole scene of them 
escaping through the Red Sea on dry grounds, the Red Sea coming on top of the Egyptian army. In chapter 15, it's a song. So here it's, they've just been delivered out of their slavery. They have just been delivered from a pursuing army. The imagery that we're given in the New Testament, you have just been delivered from your sin and from this world, and you are standing and abiding in the salvation of the Lord. Do you feel it? Now listen to the song. I will sing to the Lord, for he has, he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. He's my Father's God, and I will exalt him. And you can go on through this song, but it's a huge crescendo, okay? Salvation. God fulfilling his promises. God leading the people. And here we go. Exodus 15, verse 22. Again, it's really the Lord, but Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur. There they are out in the wild. And oh, so often that can be a picture of the journey as we follow Jesus in this venture of faith. And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. How long can you survive without water? Three, day, three days. We need water to survive. Does God know that? But he's led them to a place that has no water. When they came to Mara, they could not drink the waters of Mara, for they were bitter. So sit in James's imagery, a, a spring. A source of water cannot bring forth salty water, brackish water, bitter water, and fresh water at the same time. We can't have this mixture on the inside. We need to be changed into the image of Christ to bring forth that fresh water. But listen to this. So the water was bitter, therefore the name is called Mara. So in the verb, this form, it's, it revolves around rebellion as a noun, it's bitterness. It has the idea of, you know, when a human being is bitter, there's anger, you're being chafed, there's discontent. What does it say in verse 24? The people, they're complaining, and it's murmur, murmur, murmur. You know, there's, they're sitting in the Lord, triumphing gloriously, delivered from their oppressors. And in three days, they're not getting what they need, and the Lord knows what they need, what's happening. They're murmuring. Again, he, he's working on their hearts. It's the grumbling and the complaining. The people think that they're grumbling against Moses. They think uh, they don't know and understand that they're really grumbling against God. And again, there's a whole series of circumstances that the Lord takes them through in Exodus. But it says, they're murmuring against no Moses, saying, what shall we drink? So Moses cries out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. And the word for showed there, it's literally the Lord instructed Moses in regards to this tree. And it says, when he cast it into the waters, the waters were made sweet. This is really awesome language. There's a problem there's a problem in Israel's 
circumstances as they are in relationship with the Lord. What they need for survival, it's bitter. They can't drink it. And what does Jesus instruct Moses to do? This, the imagery here is, is incredibly powerful. Our Savior died on a tree. And ultimately, the New Testament image that we're getting out of this passage is in that bitterness of life where your sources are not providing what you need. And again, there's, there's a very specific test that the Lord is working into the people to change them and transform them, to help them understand who he is as God. In that circumstance, consider the cross. In that circumstance, the tree enters. Again, there, there's, no, there's no, why did God instruct Moses? I want you to go to this tree. Was it a stick? Was it a log? Did it take a whole bunch of people to lift? Did he just throw it into the middle? Was it a pond? Was it a spring? What was the source of water? The source of water was disgusting, incapable of consumption, incapable of satisfying the nation of Israel. And God's instruction was for a tree to enter into that brackish water. And the brackish water was made sweet. And this is, you ever say the term, that sucks? It's kind of like saying in the culture, you know, my sons will use this, like, that's wicked. What does that mean? It doesn't mean it's wicked and evil. It means that's cool, that's awesome, right? Using a word for its exact opposite. When you sit in this idea of the word for sweet, it literally means sucks. And this is what it is. When you are thirsty and you get water into this fresh spring and you're able to cup your hand, what do you do? And it's satisfying. It's sweet. That's this idea of meditating on the cross of Christ. Who is your God? Is he the God of gods? That's what he demonstrated himself to be to the nation of Israel and to the nation of Egypt immediately prior to all this that's going on, proving who he is, delivering in a way that leaves without a doubt. God is, and he is the God of the heavens and the earth. He is my creator. He is my protector. He is my deliverer. Is he my provider? He leads us to circumstances that feel like and can bring about the emotion of bitterness. And he brings out of us what's going on on the inside. And as we are honest with him and we let those things come out and have those honest conversations with him, where does he take us? He takes us to the tree. This is why I created you. I created you to be in my image, to be in my similitude, and you are broken. And I've promised to heal you, to repair you, to rebuild you, and that only comes through my son who died on a tree to die your death for your sins, to strip you of your bitterness, 
to strip you of all of your filth and to give to you my holiness, my righteousness, my sweet water. Does this make sense? Do you, do you sit in the imagery of this? We listen to all kinds of teachers that bring us to murmuring and complaining about circumstances, complaining about culture, complaining at the, about the other people. Let few people in your life be teachers because you want those who are giving you instruction in the way of life to stand only in the name of Jesus and provide to you out of his well of water that he'd create in us that spring and that well of water and that out of us, out of that relationship would flow torrents of water that is worth slurping. The image to me is just incredible. And have that same image. Those teachers that you are giving your ear to and they are only giving you salt water, turn the tap off. Because if that's what you're consuming, it's, it's not nourishment, it's not sweet, it's setting your life on edge and you're not complaining against people. You're ultimately complaining against God. The rest of this passage it says there, God made, he laid down a statute and an ordinance for them. And there, it's literally, he tested them. Again, sanctifying them, consecrating them. And said, if you diligently heed. To heed means to listen to the voice of the Lord your God. And to do what is right in his sight. James is saying the same thing. Responding, you're believing the Lord. You understand, you have faith. Now do what is right in his sight. Working together, your faith and your works working together. You give ear to his commandments and you keep all his statutes. Listen to this. I will put none of the diseases on you which I brought on the Egyptians. So all of those judgments. I am the Lord who heals you, Jehovah Rapha. I will repair you, I will rebuild you, I will restore you. I am going to give to you myself, is what God says. And that is the incredible gospel, New Testament, Old Testament, awesomeness. All right, worship team. Heavenly Father, we love you tremendously, and we love your word, Lord. I am I'm giving you thanks right now for all of the different teachers that you have sent in my life that have faithfully instructed me in your word. You have sent men and women throughout my journey over the last 20 years, Lord, to, to share their, their testimony and their life experiences, to share their understanding about the truth of your word. You have sent people in my life that I have been able to pick up what they're putting down. Lord, you have intentionally, you have turned off so many sources of bitterness, of complaining, of the world, of things that just don't matter. I'm thinking of the woman at the well right now, Lord, just in that, in that conversation. You are our source.
I sit in the, um, the promises of the Old Testament to give to the nation of Israel a land flowing with milk and honey. Here they are in the wilderness, and time and time again, Lord, you use the imagery of these wells to demonstrate just the, the sweetness of your word, the, the satisfaction that we have of just, just like a cold cup of water on a hot day, Lord. There you are satiating us. The imagery that you use in regards to demons and they're in dry places, Lord. Because dry places are bad. Out of your throne proceeds a river of water of life. That river, Lord, feeds a tree, the tree of life. And it is going to bear your eternal fruits, Lord. On this day, cleanse my heart. Wash, purge, sanctify, reestablish. Put your words upon this, Lord. And those things that I think about, that I meditate, Lord, create in me an abundance of you. That what comes out of my mouth is you and you alone. Lord, we love you. We submit ourselves to the change that you have for us today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.